Welcome to episode 26. We're happy to be here with you. And today we're going to talk about David and Solomon. Were they good guys or bad guys? Yeah, were they good guys or bad guys? And I'm Farrell. And I'm Rhonda Pickering. And, you know, as always, you know, we tell you ahead of time, but that's all right. Just give us the like. Let's go for it right here. You know, believe it or not, I think this is one of the more important lessons for us today. And you're going to think that I think that about all the lessons. That's right. It's your another favorite. <laughs> it's my another favorite. Yes, it <laughs> yeah, is. But uh, just so you kind of have an idea of what we're going to do, what we'd kind of like to do is do a little bit of a contrast between Saul and David and Solomon and discuss probably some different perspectives than um, I would say normal uh, that I encounter. And um, then towards the end, we're going to investigate the Davidic Covenant because the Davidic Covenant is critical for us to understand today in order to fulfill the missions that we have to fulfill in the last days. And so we kind of want to end on that note with this lesson. So let's first look at Doctrine and Covenants. Section 1, the the introduction that the Lord gave for the Doctrine and Covenants. And, And we've talked about how we're kind of in a days of judges kind of thing, you know, where it says where everyone did what was right in, in their, their own, own eyes. eyes. Well, take a look at this, verse 14 through 17 in Doctrine and Covenants section 1. To us today, it says, And the arm of the Lord shall be revealed, and the day cometh that they who will not hear the voice of the Lord, neither the voice of his servants, neither give heed to the words of the prophets and apostles, shall be cut off from among the people. Now you notice that we underlined that S right there, his servants. That is a word link. And by the end of this lesson, you're gonna have an idea of who those servants are. For at our time, they have strayed from mine ordinances and have broken mine everlasting covenant. They seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way after the image of his own God. Kind of similar language to what we were experiencing. Exactly like we were talking about, right? Yep. And then here, of course, the Doctrine and Covenants is going to place this right in the end time, whose image is in the likeness of the world and whose substance is that of an idol, which waxeth old and shall perish in Babylon, even Babylon the Great, which shall fall. And we've talked about before um, that though that word fall is a word link, not just through, through to the fall of Babylon in the last days, but at the fall of Jericho. It ties those two scenarios right. together, you know. Wherefore I, the Lord, knowing the calamity which should come upon the inhabitants of the earth, called upon my servant Joseph Smith, Jr., and spake unto him from heaven and gave him commandments. So this is the why. This is the why we have to learn about the covenants. Because if we don't, then we will all be walking in our own way and after the image of our own God. So, again, word of God speak. What, are, what is God's covenant and how does it relate to us? So if you have Isaiah illustrated, you know that there's a big glossary in the back. And again, if you look up that word fall, 
you see that it's a word link to the destruction of or to the fall of Babylon and those that will fall with Babylon in the end time. So again, we're tying this right down to our day. Now, we're going to just take a look at a kind of a contrast, a compare and contrast between Saul and David and Solomon. And I'm super, super excited today because we have one of my dear, dear friends, Amberly Peterson, that is going to come and give us a little bit of a take on the story of David that I think that maybe some of us aren't aware of. And again, take everything that we say here with a grain of salt because it's what the scriptures say that matters. But I think some of these ideas might help us see a little more deeply into the text of the scriptures. The stories behind the stories. The stories behind the stories. So with the fall of King Saul, he uh, did several things that got him in trouble. He had received an express command to wait seven days. And this had been confirmed to him by appointed signs. I know that we kind of read past chapter 15 and didn't read it, but it's actually really important to understand what's going on with the Davidic covenant to, to lay this groundwork here. Saul knew that the stake of his kingdom depended on him waiting. So, I mean, gosh, if, if King Saul can't even wait seven days for, for the Samuel to come and to fulfill what God had told him to do, can you imagine if Joshua had that attitude, you know? You gotta walk around the wall in the city for six days, and then on the seventh day, and everybody's silent on the six days, and then on the seventh day, <clears throat> everybody needs to shout. After seven times. I mean, they, they, they could have just said, God, you're crazy. But what happens here in 1 Samuel 15 is that Saul chooses impatience and distrust, distrust in God. He probably doesn't mean to purposely go against God's command, but he does so because of the pressure he was under and the urgency he felt. To continue waiting was tedious and uncertain. At any moment, his retreat to the mountains could be cut off. He chose what looked like the prudent thing to do, to take matters into his own hands and make the burnt offering himself. And of course, he's going to make that burnt offering with animals that the Lord had told him to slay in the last battle because of the judgment on that city. So. I mean, this, this problem is compounding, okay? And when called out for his disobedience by Samuel, he made excuses rather than taking responsibility for his actions. So, we're, of course, we're going to contrast that to David when David gets called out by a prophet of the Lord. Now, Samuel tells King Saul, Does the Lord have as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, this one's probably yeah, pretty is, famous, yeah. This is a scripture chase, scripture one. To obey is better than a sacrifice. sacrifice, and to pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as re reprehensible as the sin of divination. I mean, he's, he's saying, Saul, what you did was as reprehensible as divination, which is kind of funny because he's going to do that too later. But... And insubordination is as re reprehensible as false religion and idolatry. Since you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. And then you remember that 
Saul, in desperation, as Samuel goes to leave, tries to grab onto his coattail to have him come back. And when he does, he rips Samuel's coattail. And Samuel tells him, as my coattail has been rent, your kingdom is going to be rent from you. Yeah, it's kind of a fulfillment a little bit of the warning that yeah. that Saul, Samuel already gave the people about a king. But the reason it's so important to lay this foundation with King Saul here before we talk about David and Solomon is because you need to look at what Saul did here. He disobeyed what God told him to do. And what we're going to ask ourselves, is that going to play out? Is that going to happen with David and Solomon as well? Now, the scriptures paint David in a positive light. And it's kind of it's kind of different because most of us, when we think of King David, we think of his fall and the, and the whole story with Bathsheba. And I've, I'm so excited that Amberly's going to share with us today some insights into that story. But first, let's take a look at what the Lord says about um, David when he anoints him, when he removes Saul and makes David the king. After removing Saul, this is Acts chapter 13, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and he will do everything I want him to do. And that, that is a beautiful attribution from the Lord for right. King David. And of course, he's taking that from 1 Samuel 13, when David is anointed king. The following words describe the heart of David in David's own writing. So, of course, David's words are going to be where? Psalms. They're going to be the book of Psalms. As a matter of fact, he's going to write almost half of the book of Psalms is written by King David. And we can look into his heart and to his humility. Low-born men are but a breath. The high-born are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Psalm 62, verse 9. Another characteristic of David that we see in Scripture is his reverence. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from mine enemies. Psalm 18, verse 3. So you want to take the next couple, respectful and trusting. Be merciful unto me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. Trusting, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I mean, can you imagine if, if our leaders had these attitudes today? The leaders of our country? Right. I mean, we're talking the king of the nation and how he feels about... God. Loving. I love you, O Lord, my strength. You want me to keep going? Yeah, go ahead. Devoted. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when there was grain and new wine abound. Recognition. I will praise you, O Lord, with all my heart. I will tell you of all your wonders. Do you think that, I, I, I know that you've said this before, but do you think that is to aggrandize God? Well, I know. I, I actually, I love praise music, and we're, uh, praise music is for us. 
I've always said that. Praise music isn't because God likes to be flattered. Praise music is for us because it, I consider it, and I've said this before, that it is a reset of our programming. It's what kind of aligns us. It draws us up into the throne room. Yeah, I've, it, when I've been in my lowliest places in my life, praise music has lifted me out in miraculous ways. And that says a lot about David because there's going to be plenty of experiences where David is in low places. Right. Well, I think we've all come to low places, right? Faithful. Surely goodness and love will follow me all of my days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I can't wait till we do Psalm 23. That's one of my favorites. Obedient. Give me understanding, and I will keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Boy, now that's such a beautiful thing. That's why I say too often we have looked at the one mistake of David and put him in the discard pile. Exactly. Uh, That's one of the reasons I'm I'm bringing this out. I mean, scripturally, the, the scriptures don't go back and say, oh, just make sure you don't ever do the sin of David and Bathsheba. Yeah. No, it's it's all about repent like David. Yeah, well, have faith like the David. next one. Repent. Yeah. For the sake of your name, O Lord, forgive my iniquity, though it is great. So, of course, David is the only one in Scripture where God declares that he is a man after his own heart. Yeah, I know. I so, know that. just my heart. There's more to the story of David and Bathsheba than what we read on the surface. Which we are going to find I'm out. I'm going to save that one for Amberly. I'm going to set a little bit of groundwork for her before she gets here. The first one is that in the book Isaiah Decoded by Dr. Abraham Gilyadi, in Isaiah, he kind of paints a picture of seven different categories of people. And the way you can see that he's painting that picture is because, like, with the words Zion and Jerusalem, you'll see that that's the orange level kind of in the middle of the ladder there. Every time he says Zion and Jerusalem, he's describing a group of people that have certain attitudes and certain kind of characteristics every time. And it's consistent throughout the whole book. And when he speaks of sons and daughters... They're consistently doing something. There's something that describes what a son and daughter is in the scriptures just by comparing all those places where it talks about them. And the same thing with Jacob Israel. Jacob Israel is that place where people believe there's a God, but, you know, I I think the commandments are more of a (laughs) chakarama, smorgasbord, choose what you like and toss the others away, right? The believing side of America, most of the believing side of America believes in a God, but they don't believe God. Right. It's kind of a... Don't believe in having to obey him. Well, and don't believe he's, you know, that that what he says really is important. Oh, I get what you said. You said they believe in God, but they don't believe God. Exactly. <laughs> That's good. Okay. All right. And so in um, Isaiah's... In other words, Go ahead. They, they believe in him, but what he says doesn't matter. Right. All right, so in Isaiah, there's another level that is called a seraph level. And we've kind of talked about this before. They're represented in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle of, in the wilderness. You know that the whole Holy of Holies is a celestial room. But in the celestial room, there's the ark, and then there's the seraphim. 
that are above the ark and then God is above them. And so we have a we have a horizontal ascension in the tabernacle and then we have a vertical ascension once we get into the Holy of Holies. So in many, many ways, scripture in in, in all different uh, kinds of metaphors describes these different levels. You could call them kingdoms. You could call them um, spiritual realms, or even just well, categories. God calls them kingdoms in right. seventy-six. So, all right. So, when a person is ascending from one category to the next, the Lord gives them tests in order to be able to prove the, their faithfulness. And like, like, for instance, when we come into Zion, we are baptized. And, and there's criteria, and there's, there's even involved in that for a lot of us. I know there was, for me, a descent, a descent phase. What was I willing to do in order to make that covenant real in my life? Okay, and so every different level has different things associated with it, like that. Their descent, speaking of this seraph level that's even above the sons and daughters and, and prophets, the sons, their descent into suffering and humiliation as they intercede for those less blessed than themselves leads to their exaltation as they and their spouses ascend to see God. So you love that in um, in the celestial kingdom, there's marriage, right? In in the doctrine and covenants, it tells us that the highest degree you're able to have families, and that when you look on the ark of the covenant, those two seraphs, the rabbis will tell you, are male and female in that kingdom. So persons on the seraph level follow the same pattern that those do on the other kingdoms by keeping the terms of the covenant that God makes with them individually. And it is a similar pattern to the Davidic covenant and its protection clause. So the Davidic covenant is all about bringing protection to a city or a people. And we're going to talk about that a lot more later. The emperor delivers those who are loyal to the vassal, provided that the vassal is loyal to the emperor, and answers for their loyalties to him. Like sons and servants, seraphs vindicate or justify those to whom they minister by bearing their iniquities, so that they may escape death at the hands of their enemies, in this case in Isaiah, the king of Assyria. So you can get a lot more on these different levels and how the covenants work on those levels by looking at Dr. Abraham Gilyadi's book, Isaiah Decoded. This is from my favorite chapter, the chapter on the seraphs. Seraphs, however, take covenant keeping to the next level. They physically bring many of God's people out of destruction at the time that God cleanses the earth from wickedness in the last days. And so what this makes you wonder is what if David hadn't have messed up. What if whatever this test was that Amberly's going to talk to us about, what if this test that David underwent, what if he would have passed it, what would have happened to the nation of Israel? It says that, that keeping a covenant on that level would have made them able to bring people out from destruction. Whole cities. Hmm. This is why 
Davidic covenants are so important and we have to understand how they work. But we know from the history of King David how he wouldn't hurt Saul, even though Saul hunted him down. How when enemies came and executed his enemies in some treacherous way and then went to King David and bragged to him about it, King David executed the guy who was treacherous, who wasn't honorable. I mean, even in battle, you had to have honor. You had to keep God's laws of warfare in the scriptures. Those who ascend to this third level of blessedness, this seraph level, compare in stature to God's, their scope of vision, and their ministering functions encompass heaven and earth. What if David would have passed his test? What if he would have been able to ascend instead of descend? Do you have a thought? Is that dinging for you? That's Amber Lee trying to tell us. That's why I say you need to take it. That's fine. Okay. After this, I'll turn around. She says, on my way. Okay, so those who ascend to this third level of blessedness, and that's kind of a Hebrew thing. They call it blessedness. You know how Paul says he ascended to the to the third heavens, you know, they, and so it's a Hebrew thing to be levels of blessedness. Compare in stature to God's. Their scope and vision and ministering functions encompass heaven and earth. And so just to kind of give an example of what we're talking about here, we can, we can actually look at Isaiah himself. So in Isaiah Decoded, they have a chart here right along in chapter 40 where there's a literary structure going on between when Isaiah is called to remember in the, the Lord says in, in that theophany in chapter 6, um, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And he says that before he gets the details of the mission because I'm not sure that, well, the truth is anyone that is on a seraph level would accept the mission that the Lord gave him no matter what it cost him. But in Isaiah chapter 6, we have the seraphs are standing in the Lord's council. But after 40 years of ministry in Isaiah chapter 40, and Isaiah preaching with all of his heart, we see that it is Isaiah that is standing in the Lord's council in Isaiah chapter 40. So just notice that Isaiah is going to become like the seraphs in chapter 40. What happens to him in chapter 6, he administers to others in chapter 40. So we have the seraphs declaring that Isaiah's sins are expiated in verse 7 in chapter 6, whereas in chapter 40 we have the prophet announcing that Zion has expiated her guilt. Covenant curses are about to turn around for Zion. As the seraph speaks kindly to Isaiah in chapter 6, Isaiah speaks kindly to the Lord's people in Isaiah chapter 40. And we're using keywords here that are in both. And then the seraph's role in healing Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 verse 7 is now undertaken by the prophet himself as he heals Hezekiah.
he comes to Hezekiah and blesses him in Isaiah 38. Of course, the Lord heals everyone, but the you can see that there's a model that's being followed there. And that is what we're talking about here. When we're, when we're talking about ascending to a seraph level, we're talking about the fact that in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is on the earth. And, and that he's, he's ascended in vision, but they, they're ministering to him. But in Isaiah chapter 40, he's with God cosmically explaining a vision from a up-in-the-universe type perspective. So the seraphs have visions of the end from the beginning, like yeah. Isaiah had. That's beautiful. All right, and so what we're talking about is a different level. So when David is being tested with Bathsheba and that whole situation there, it's not the same as King Saul, and if he'll wait for the Lord and and wait to offer the sacrifice. Though in some ways it is, but we're going to let Amberly give us more information about that. Okay, so now let's take a look at King Solomon. And um, we have here one of probably, if you say King Solomon, everybody is going to go right here to this judgment scene, most probably, yeah. in First Kings chapter 3. So, the famous story yeah. of Solomon when he judges between the two. And you go ahead and tell the story. Do you want me to tell the whole yeah, story? Yeah, go ahead. Well, Solomon's been brought this case of two harlots who have had children, and in the process of the children, one of them rolled over and suffocated their child. And in the process of rolling over and suffocating the child, she decides she doesn't want to lose her child. And so she claims the other one's child. And the case gets brought before Solomon. And this is the famous Wisdom of Solomon story where you have the two women coming before him and he says, will you both claim the child? And they say, yes, he's my child. No, he's my child. And they're both going on. And he, in his wisdom, he says, well, let's cut the baby in half and you can both take a half. And obviously... The, I, I can't believe that the one actually agreed to it, even if it wasn't her child. I know, <laughs> you know? So there's something a little odd about this story. Well, as in, in the fact maybe that she was already allegory. selfish, or she was really a selfish individual and right. spiteful maybe um, but anyway long and short of it the one that, whose child it really is says no go ahead and give it to her and the one who isn't was okay with it and so that's how Solomon determines he awards the child to the one who gave the child away and, and, and the wisdom in the thing is that whether or not it was her child or not is irrelevant she is the one that would be the better mother. The better mother to the child. Right. So and no matter what, his judgment was sound. And so this is the, the great story of Solomon's wisdom that we all talk about. And it's actually the story that sticks out in most people's heads about Solomon. Right. And so what's <clears throat> funny is that, again, like, like I said, we're going to kind of play with this contrast a little bit, is that when people remember King David, they remember his sin. But when they remember King Solomon, they remember his great wisdom and his his skill well, of judgment and, and, and the gift from God that God gave him. Well, in, in a lot of ways, it didn't just end with this woman. It, it, his whole kingdom was very administrated well, well through the beginning and way into it. He, 
he was quite a good administrator. And I think that Joseph Smith is going to pick up on that. Joseph Smith said, if there was anything great or good in the world, it came from God. Wisdom to govern the house of Israel was given to Solomon. And so here we actually have Joseph Smith remembering Solomon in more of a positive light. And the judges of Israel, if he had always been their king, listen to this, if Solomon had always been their king, and they subject to his mandate and obedient to his laws, they would still have been a great and mighty people, the rulers of the universe and the wonders of the world. Hmm. Wow. That, that's, that's pretty good. That's a, a accolade, from, an accolade yeah. from Joseph Smith. And here's another one. If we seek first the kingdom of God... All good things will be added. So with Solomon. Now, notice here that, you know, the only references that Jesus gives to Solomon, do you remember them from the New Testament? He says about the flowers. Not having a quick moment on this one. He says that, you know, even King Solomon was not arrayed in his glory oh, as like these flowers. flowers. Sure, no, remember? I yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And then throughout the... Yeah, throughout Jesus' speaking, he, he will kind of use this Solomon being the greatest glory that, that we can compare the, the to. The glory of Israel. Right, the glory of Israel, okay? And so it's, it's not a negative connotation on King Solomon, but that Jeremiah and some of the others are going to remember Solomon quite negatively. And it's just very interesting in Scripture that Solomon... Can is is remembered negatively, but David is referred to positively throughout Scripture, and so this this kind of makes us you know what is this is is who's good guy and who's bad guy right? Well, of course I don't know I'm probably jumping ahead, but but you know that that one had a very repentant attitude and the other one almost huge. got senile in his later years. Huge, huge, their reaction to, to correction, just like we talked about with Saul. What did Saul do? His reaction to He made excuses. He right. tried to argue with Samuel, right? right? And, you know, Solomon obviously started to compromise all over the place at exactly. the end of his life. Exactly, and we are headed that way. So with Solomon, first he asked wisdom. And God gave it to him. Now you remember when Solomon was on the uh, had got the throne, he was young. He felt right. like he, God had to help him to judge Israel. He was and that, that's at that point. and and that's why he asked for that, and the Lord blessed him so so greatly. And God gave it to him, and with it every desire of his heart, even things which now this is an insight from Joseph Smith, even things which might be considered abominable to those who understand the order of heaven only in part. In other words, Joseph Smith's giving us a hint that there's more to the story behind mm. Solomon as well, but which in reality were right because God gave and sanctioned it by special revelation, meaning maybe there's a time and a place for the situation that Solomon was in. I've heard that in ancient Israel, the wives, the widows that came into the king's court as concubines was more like a welfare system. Right. Like when kind of one of their soldiers of, died in battle, you yeah, know, they, 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 they were they the were ladies, taken so into the court. And so there, there's a lot more to it than, than what we understand. And here on the right of the screen, what you see is a page from the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. And this is where 
this is the place where we get the information that the Song of Solomon is not um, inspired writings. So that was Joseph Smith's comment on the Song of Solomon, which is why we don't really study that that book in the church today. Now, I think it's fascinating. Um, I think that Chuck Misler probably has given the best um, study of, Solomon, of the yeah. Song of Solomon and what it was, that it was a play and that it has all these parts and it has all of these literary structures and rhyme and and assonance and, and word plays going on in the Hebrew that we lose in the English and and there's a lot of uh, he, he gives a very good explanation of the book of Song of Solomon in my opinion and I just think that the even though it's not inspired writings there's lots of writings that aren't necessarily scripture that we that we study you know Shakespeare or you know anything right. any other uh, writing that isn't isn't in the canonized and, and in a sense if I recall right when Chuck addressed it it was more along the line of Israel falling away and coming back and right and, right yes. so as an allegory most of your Christian scholars the reason that they have put it in there in the Bible is because of its allegorical value, yeah. but um, but it's very very uh, obviously difficult Joseph Smith wasn't really impressed. <laughs> yes, and and because it's it's very it's very uh, realistic in its love right. story that that it's not inspired scripture. That being said, it's very interesting as an allegory. But I, well, I just wanted to point out here, and we're not even sure that Solomon wrote it. I mean, we can't that can't even be proven. But the point that I'm trying to make here is that, that Joseph Smith upheld King Solomon in those things that he could be upheld to him, and then he was not hesitant to say the Song of Solomon isn't inspired scripture right. at the same time. Okay? All right, now we're going to move to a reality check of what happens in the life of King Solomon. In spite of being beloved by God, beloved by God in First Chronicles, and blessed by God, and given abundant wisdom, fame, fortune, power, and authority, Solomon thanked God by doing the following, multiplying his number of wives. Hmm. That is in First Kings chapter 11, but you can compare Deuteronomy 17.17, 17, Deuteronomy 17.17 17 absolutely forbids kings of Israel to multiply three things. Wives, gold, and chariots, more horses. So why those three things? Why the, the wives, the gold, and the horses? The first one is the, the idea with having such a huge um, harem or household was that if the anything happened to your kingdom, your dynasty would be so big, there would always be someone to claim the throne. And so to the way Deuteronomy is talking about it, to multiply wives in that context Money, was to build your own dynasty, dynasty. Instead of God's and Instead kingdom. of trusting God, God can take King David, a shepherd, the seventh born, and make him king. Right, and okay? so... To try to hedge up your own... To hedge up your own bets, yeah, right? Is, is a lack of faith. It's right. a lack of... 
So no, no building of dynasties. Okay. Right. Then the other uh, there's an, the other thing that Solomon did was marrying the foreign wives, and of course this Deuteronomy seven and there's don't marry that you don't marry outside of Israel unequally yoked. And what's seven. interesting, what's interesting is that the sin is different. Because it says when you marry your foreign wives, what happens is that your children grow up worshiping other gods. But Which happened. Yes. <laughs> yes. And Deuteronomy says that if you multiply your number of wives, that it will take your heart from God into idolatry in the end. Which also happened. Which also happened. Yep. All right. Now, most of us don't know that Solomon built more than a thousand pagan altars when he was king in and around Jerusalem including within the temple precincts he built an altar to Chemosh on the Mount of Olives not cool yeah okay he instituted human sacrifice now Solomon it's not recorded that Solomon himself passed his children through the fire but it is recorded that the people of Israel will use those altars to do that. King Ahaz will. Later. Later. And that we have two instances of kings offering their children in subsequent pages of, of scripture. Not so different than, than we in our compromise in latter days politically speaking with all the other world countries we hardly have an identity anymore. And so you, you, we have no identity as a nation almost. But anymore. notice that's exactly what Solomon's and that's doing. By He's bringing in yeah. all the nations. So same type of patterns that are causing the uh, same. Okay, so there's type a possible end time connection here, right? Obviously. Okay. Multiplying silver and gold. Why would you not? God command you not to multiply silver and gold. Then what would you trust? The silver and gold. Obviously, if you trust your money, you're not in trust right. with God. This is, you know, getting the big bank accounts. This is you're getting your security from your money, and you know, in the in the scriptures in Deuteronomy, the reason you don't want to do that is because if you have masses of silver, gold, and gold for your protection, then all that has to happen is. The enemies need to come in and take your silver and gold. <laughs> and then... Well, know. truthfully, the biggest flaw in the whole thing is where you yourself start to place your confidence. It's not so much... The, and, and I would agree with you. It's I a think mentally you place in your I confidence. think that in the relationship with the kings, the kings and God himself, them being the kings that, that are keeping covenant with God, that it's imperative that they trust him. And not their gold. They trust him and not build their dynasty. And then the other one was they are not to multiply horses. Now, um, what's a big weapon today? I don't know my guns and my weapons. Well, comparatively. Just give me a big weapon. Help. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tanks. Um, a tank or whatever. So in Solomon's day, that would be a chariot. The right. best horses and the best chariots. <laughs> of course, in their day, that, that chariot almost was on the higher end of their weaponry, so it would be up in a category of you know, airplanes and aircraft carriers right. and stuff like that. And so why would God command them not to multiply horses? Not to multiply weapons? 
because I don't know because it's a, because well yes I do know yeah okay I, I did, did you know? it's because it can get into the enemy's hands. All you gotta do is have a bad guy come to power. Well, all you gotta do is think about <laughs> Afghanistan. <laughs> you know it all it all became um, all of America's weapons fell into the hands of terrorists. Yes. Hi guys. Oh my gosh. There, Emily's here. here. I'm so Oh, good to see you. Farrell, good to see you. so grateful that you came. Welcome. Yeah. Please, come sit down. Good to be here. Okay, so we have been talking about David and Bathsheba and the fact that I feel like there's more to the story than what we read in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I happen to know that you know stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know some interesting little tidbits that that are worth... Uh, sharing worth considering certainly um, I had the opportunity when I was in Israel a few years ago I've been there several times but the last time I was there we had this very very bright and articulate uh, tour guide um, an older man who was very wise very educated of course grew up in Israel and and one night around dinner we got talking about David and Bathsheba and at the time it was a real big focus of my study I been fascinated with that story for years and years and read everything I could get my hands on, including a book I'm going to reference here in a minute. But anyway, and so I wanted to pick his brain, knowing it was going to give me a cultural perspective, a theological perspective from, of course, a Jewish perspective that that, that he brought, that of course I don't, and in, in his learning and in his formal education kind of what. And, and of course, all these things that we're talking about, I mean, we're not preaching doctrine here. We're no. sharing some very interesting cultural uh-huh. insights. Just some... some, some Nuance that adds layers and gives you more to think about because a lot of times the story is presented in a very black and white way. David made bad decision, ended up bad, horrible, bad, bad. Yeah. Let's all learn never to be David. Right. Well, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. So that's what I am excited to share. I'm excited too. So starting off with the fact that um, he said, now there's a few things you might not have heard or considered before in your Western interpretation of some of these things and I said oh oh yeah I'm all ears and he said you know um about the story well a couple things with with them and so I'll get into that but I realize now we will back up just a little bit to Bathsheba herself so let's let's actually start there with actually what happened so um the text itself if we can go to that slide that you have gives us a, a really good insight as to Bathsheba herself and I think she's got a, gotten a really bad rap throughout history that somehow she was playing the role of the seductress and she was, you know, immodestly bathing up there bathing. The and look at me, look <laughs> at me, look at me, world. Well, the truth of the matter is, and then the, the, the hint comes right out of verse 2 when he said he saw a woman washing herself. Yes, she was and uh, because she's required to. And by that I mean uh, Jewish women... Um, on the twelfth day of their cycle, of their menstrual cycle, day one being the onset, and on the twelfth day, according to Jewish law, they are to immerse themselves, well first cleanse themselves and then immerse themselves in a form of living water, a full immersion, to regain the purity that they had lost through the menstrual cycle. This would be not a baptism? Not a baptism. Not to be confused by baptism, number one, because men do it too. The high priest, before they you know, perform their rituals in the temple, okay. they would have what's right. called mikvah. Right. Mikvah means gathering of waters, because they literally have to gather fresh water, or living water, I should say. And so all women do it. And typically a bride and a groom on their wedding day will separately take a mikvah too. So it's about I've, purity, not remission I've of sin. I've actually heard that they can mikvah 
utensils, pots and pans. Yes, yes. Very, right? Mm -hmm, so yeah. so it's not a baptism. I nope, know. it's a regaining of purity. If you've touched or had any interaction with blood, Cleansing. as you know, then you regain purity. Yeah. But okay. not not in anything to not any way to do with the remission of sins. That's entirely so it's different. not a baptism. Not a baptism. It's not a bath. No, and it's a monthly ritual that's very very strictly defined and strictly kept. Even so much, for example, a little side note here: during the Holocaust, when the Jews found themselves in the ghettos of Warsaw, at night the women would make these escapes and these valiant attempts to get away from the guards. These Jewish women to find neighborhood pools in the the ghettos of Warsaw. To be able to keep this law it's that strict and um, anyhow so she was doing what she did every month at that time which it was day 12 and she, why was she on a roof because they collected uh, rainwater it had to be time. living it water. had to be living water and, and it's very it's very prescribed so it can be a, a river a running river it can be an iceberg melting it can be but it can't be for example a pond you can't do a mikvah in a pond that's not living Okay. So it's very it's very prescribed as to how they can do this. So anyway, so all Jewish women collected rainwater on their roof. And it doesn't have to be a vat full of just rainwater, but rainwater has to be imbued into the water. Okay? So that happens even today in these Chabad centers all over the country, all over. We have one in Salt Lake City here. The women, the Orthodox women, will go into this beautiful center down here in Salt Lake City today, to, you know, right now. And these they have these beautiful fonts that look a lot, a lot like a baptismal font in our modern-day LDS temples. They're beautiful, tile, and just lovely. And these women will still do this. It's their mikvah. So this is what she's doing. And so, um, and it's at sundown. when you see that it, it was at even tide that he got up from his bed and saw this taking place. But that's because that's when women do it, is at even tide. Right. So evening tide. So she is up there doing her, her bath. And he sees her, and that's when he uh, says that she was very beautiful to look upon. And, and we don't know if that's the first time that he's seen her. We don't know if that he doesn't already know her or hasn't known her from before or seen her before. Whatever the, set, the case is, it doesn't really tell us. Um, but uh, he does see her, and then he sends messengers to her to bring her to him. And I think it's interesting where it says here in verse 4, David sent messengers and took her, and she came in unto him, and he lay with her, for she was purified from her uncleanness. So that validates, again, what we're talking about here. So another thing that's interesting is any woman who's conceived a child and born a child knows that if you're on day 12 of your cycle, that is your high conception. Conception is, going, is right. very, you know, very uh, a, a very Fertile. high possibility, right? Right. <laughs> so... Um, so, as we know, she, she conceives that night. But I guess let's back up to just, you know, granted, I mean, he's the king of Israel, and, and maybe she felt like, oh, he's called to me, I need to. But she was, a, a you know, a brought up in all the Jewish ways and the ways of modesty and purity. And what I'm suggesting is perhaps they did, were acquainted or somehow knew each other, maybe as children or somehow, and I'll go get to that. But what, why did she just, oh, he called for me, I'll... Right, that, right. There, there seems to be a backstory. There's a backstory there on. because she's she is married, and right. so the fact that she would just be like, "Oh, well, he's the king, so here we go." I, I think that there was that's there's something more there, but we'll talk about that anyway. So uh, she conceives, and we know that because a few weeks later she sends a message, a note, or a, lets him know, communicate to David, "I'm with child." Right now. <laughs> David is in a real pickle. 
a real conundrum here and it's and the stakes are now extremely high because it obviously occurs to him very quickly that according to Jewish law if this woman whose husband is known and very well known and is known to be off at war and has been at war for several years now right that you know or at least a, a, a long amount of time that if this woman shows up pregnant there's only one explanation for this and that's adultery and what happens to women who are caught in adultery? That's stoning. They are taken to the city square and they're stoned. And and David realizing now that she has this life in her and 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 she's that's going to be the consequence. Well, now he, two deaths are going to fall upon his hands, right. and no one's going to really know because unless he confesses, so he's going to be forced to watch this woman who he maybe loves, maybe no, you know, who knows what the relationship is at that point, but that she, you know, he's going to have to just watch this woman die, you know, and how horrible that must be. So he's thinking, I've got these two lives, or perhaps there's a better solution. So it's not that he, again, with the story, we go, oh, and he just did your right, you know, he went and got your right, and he, that's not what he first intended to do. He thought that he could quickly cover it up. The sick, yeah. He could fix it up. Okay, okay, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Fine, but let's fix it. So it wasn't the death of Uriah was on the first of his, on the top of his mind, because it wasn't. So, and, and just so you know, as we go through this, at no point am I, as we all know, are justifying anything he did. Just uh, adding, absolutely yeah, not. adding nuance. But I think just to add to what you're saying, mm -hmm. I think it's, it's worth mentioning that when Nathan came to talk to mm -hmm. him, he didn't realize that this was him. Yes. I mean, he didn't even see he it that way. See it. No, and, and it was his hypocrisy that, that was so, you know, he was so outraged by the story. And like you yeah. said, had no idea it was even him. So he his first thought is, look, let's just bring Uriah back. Let's let him have a nice weekend together. Problem solved. Nobody dies. Nobody gets stoned in the city square. We're good. So he sends for Uriah. And now Uriah comes back and he just says, hey, Give me the, you know, a war update and whatever. And, oh, and by the way, won't it be great to spend the weekend with your wife? Right. And here you go. And sent like a feast or something and, or some food. And and thinking, okay, phew, so they'll have a great weekend together. And then, okay, everything will be fine. Nobody will question anything. We're good. And so this, the morning, he his servants came up and said that, that Uriah, they had found him sleeping on David's porch. He didn't even sleep in his home. And David was alarmed at this because he thought, oh, no, my plan is about to be foiled. So he called him in and, you know, the story. And he said, uh, uh, why didn't you sleep in your house? And he said, well, how could I have these men, my, my men, my comrades are out there dying on the battlefields and they don't get the comfort of sleeping with their wives. So how can I? Well, it's very, even, very active valor. It's, it's even more than that, too, mm -hmm. because there's there's ancient Israel, Israelite traditions that the men went on a purification before they went to war. Yep. Yes. And so there, there was that involved mm -hmm. with it, too, that mm -hmm. they were afraid that if they were um, lustful or immoral or, or weren't upright before God, they couldn't be protected in battle. Yes, there is absolutely that part, too. So he knows they've all gone on this fast, if you will. Mm -hmm. And he's thinking, well, I won't even, I won't be, that would be betraying my men if I get right. to just kind of indulge in that. Well, especially if they went to battle and they lost and then he would blame himself. Yes, yes, absolutely. And they were in a, in a heated battle at that point. So, so he sleeps on David's porch and David says, well, this oh, isn't working. This isn't working. <laughs> so then they, he contrives a, a plan. He gets more food. And then the plan becomes to have the servants get him drunk. 
hoping that if we lower some inhibition and lower some of that valor, that perhaps he can, you know. So then that was the plan. And again, horrified the next morning to find out that he's asleep again on David's porch. So then he thinks, okay, well, I, I have to send him back. He was only supposed to come for a very short time. It's going to look weird if I keep him. So what David did is where this part that I was going to talk about, this this man in, in Israel talked about that kind of gave some insight on this. What he did, as we know, is he then wrote a letter to the commander and said, take, you know, here, you're right, take this to, I think, is it, um, oh, his name escapes me right now, but go and, yeah, it's a J name. <laughs> there are a lot of those. Anyway. One of these uh, guys. Yeah. And he said, uh, you know, Uriah doesn't know this, but he says, I want you to put him on the front lines. Right. And, you know, kind of, if he dies, he dies, wink, wink, or just, just go. Okay. And so Uriah doesn't know anything. He goes out, you know, hands the letter. And the next thing he knows that he puts him, of course, in the very, very heat front of the battle. And and then he ends up, of course, losing his life. And so what was filled in for me on that point was, according to this Jewish man that I'm talking about, his name's Asher, in Israel several years ago, he said, you know, David takes a lot of flack for that. Now, now realize, the Jews love David. He is the greatest of all kings. So they, they might construct some of those narratives to really defend him. Exactly. They love right. him. He's right. beloved. And, I, you know, and for they are good not reason. beyond messing with the story. That's right. And so <laughs> so part of this might be coming from that vein, but but it's worth listening, you know, worth thinking about. So um, he said, so what all he did was the, the consequence, if you will, for ever disobeying direct orders of the king slash general mm-hmm. is... Whether you're Raya or you're Joe Schmo, you will be put on the front lines. Right. So his action was very justified, quote, by the books. Right. It wasn't something he dreamed up or some act of revenge, so to speak, as much as it was, well, I can play that card because he did exactly. disobey my orders twice. twice. And so I do have grounds. I, do we agree with those? No, but that's how well, he Well, and God it. saw into his heart, and God did not excuse it. <laughs> no, absolutely not. We find that out later. Sorry. He absolutely offended God. So he, in his mind, was like, well, if he's going to disobey me, you know. Front lines it is. Front lines it is. And and so, and of course, David's heart was hoping that that would be the case because, um, again, his he chose. He chose between the two lives or the one life. Now, he should have never put himself to have to make that choice, but he did. He made the choice that he'll going to preserve, he'll preserve Bathsheba and her baby's life over Uriah's. And so that's what happened. And and then, uh, you know, it, the message came back that, that, that he died in battle. And then after she mourned her husband, you know, he, he immediately took her into his house and married her. And life looked great until which, Nathan came along. Which was not uncommon either Mm-mm. because the widows of the soldiers that were killed in battle went to the palace and were part of the king's care. Yes. It was almost a welfare system of sorts. Mm-hmm. Yes. And also, according to Asher... In Israel, he told me this part um, that's that's interesting, and he said that as a as a matter of, of protocol, it was very typical um, it, throughout the history when the men would uh, the husbands would leave for war because they didn't have DNA testing and they didn't bother bringing bodies back to identify the the dead or the fallen. Um, you know, your husband goes to war and he never comes back. It means he never will come back, and you'll never know. And so, to kind of avoid some of the implications of that. Uh, women would give their husbands a writ of divorcement while he's gone to war. And then, of course, when he comes back, then they rip it up. But during that time, and he suggested that this was the case with Bathsheba, that very likely she would have been single versus not married. Now, again, are they looking for 
and out maybe if Uriah happens to not come back. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. So so there's some, you know, some things there that are interesting to think about. But anyway, so um, you know, then as we know, the story goes on that Nathan comes and exposes what's happened and, and talks about how much they offended the Lord, and I know you're gonna go into that. But I wanted to add something about some more thought behind um David and Bathsheba as far as the fact that, you know, there was prophecy, many, several, I should say several, uh, about the fact that a king would come through David's line and the Messiah and all of these things. And if you're going to get in David's head and you're going to think about his situation, did he get ahead of the Lord? Did he, because he had the power as the, the you know, he held the most power in all of Israel as the king, right. did he look at his situation and think or know somehow that saw, uh, that through his line would come a great king. But but more importantly, in seeing in Second Chronicles, he was told that his son would build the temple. Right. And, and then also in, I believe it is in um, Second Kings as well. I think it's Second Kings or Second Samuel, where it, um, chapter seven, where it also talks about it. And now in Second Chronicles, it, let me, let me pull this, this email out because it's really interesting. And my thought as I was going through this, um, as I exchanged these emails with one of my favorite authors on this, she said that it was really interesting to her that, um, right here it is, that uh, there was two different places that talked, that David was made aware that his um, posterity, right here, okay. So in, actually it's First Chronicles. In First Chronicles 20, 22, 7 through 9, um, he named Solomon. He said to, to David, said to Solomon, my son, um, it was in my mind to build a house for the Lord, but the Lord came unto me saying, thou hast shed blood abundantly and hast made great wars and shall not build a house unto my name. Um, but behold, a son shall be born to thee who shall be a man of rest and I will give him rest from all his enemies round about and for his name shall be Solomon. And he goes on to talk about this. So he's talking to Solomon saying the Lord has told him this, right? Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is in uh, in Second Samuel chapter 7, God uh, made the same promise to David that a son born to him who would build a house for God, uh, for God, but that Solomon was not named, whereas in Chronicles he was. And so what she was suggesting, um, this author that I exchanged some emails with, it was very insightful, was suggesting, and she'd written three books on David's wives and a big history about David. It was really good. And um, what she was suggesting is that um, perhaps David as part of this getting ahead of the Lord that we've all talked about and is pretty obvious what happened. But perhaps he's looking at his sons who are pretty full grown by then are the ones that he'd had. And, and he maybe had a sense that, you know, it wasn't them or it wasn't that, that there was still a son to come, a, a very a noble son. And we also know that Bathsheba was actually a very noble birthright. Right. And right. this goes to where, and again, maybe this is a little bit of reach, but if he knew her and if they had been acquainted or if they had maybe a connection when they were younger children or that they had, like she suggests, perhaps had been promised to each other, but perhaps her dad or some kind of relation of hers was had arranged the marriage with David, but then got sideways with him, pulled her back and had her marry somebody else. And David was basically claiming what he felt like was his. Right but way ahead of when the Lord was going to give it to him. Right. Was David and Bathsheba eventually going to get together? Of course they were. Did it need to involve adultery and murder? Absolutely not. But for them to have the lineage they did with Solomon, and then of course the Messiah, Christ, those two needed to get together. And and I think that this kind of goes along with the idea that David had already passed so many tests mm -hmm. with the Lord, that the Lord had given him an unconditional covenant. Yep. Yep. 
Okay, so this wasn't your average run-of-the-mill um, for lust yep. situation. Mm-hmm. There was there was something that made this test hard mm-hmm. to pass. Mm-hmm. And think about what a Logically, hard test it was. It Absolutely. And here's the king of Israel who could have had any other. Well, you know, he could have had anything, which is an interesting way that Nathan kind of talked about this rich man who had all that had everything. Had everything. And what a test that would be if the one thing David wants, which is her is the one thing out of his reach. And you think about it, you could even compare it to Abraham. Mm-hmm. What did God do to test yep. Abraham? He took the, the thing, thing that he loved the most. And Joseph Smith said, the Lord will fill after your very heartstrings. Exactly. Whatever is hard. So, so again, King of Israel stands there in all of his wealth and glory and splendor and power and and love from the Lord and the, and the, and the chosenness that he was. And the one thing he wants, the Lord has kept in saying, on my time. Do you trust me? On my time. Do you trust me? And unlike the rest of us who don't have the power to just, I don't have, you know, I'm the king. I can, I'm the queen. I can just take it if I want. Well, we don't, we don't have that power. So exactly. Some, some of our tests are, are just a little bit safer. Yes. But David had the power to outstep the Lord and not many of us have that power. And he did and he took it and he exploited that. And I, and that's, I think, where he lost the that favor is. with God. And, and, now let's talk about too about that because um so this other jewish writer really good uh uh 12th century writer named uh he brought up a really good point his name is um it's right here um well it's in this book and he's a a rabbi so this book is called the sacred embrace of jesus and mary and it brings up a really important point about david and Bathsheba. so i thought it'd be worth mentioning so this Rabbi Joseph uh, Gikatila, who was a very, uh, like I said, 12th century, very honored and um, revered, esoteric Jewish scholar, commentator, poet. Um, they said he studied under the man who wrote the Zohar. So okay. the mysticism of, yes, of okay. Judaism, Judaism. So very interesting man, very, very bright. Um, and he talked about, he, write, he writes a book, it was in, French, or I would have gotten it. It's French, or <laughs> French and Hebrew. I would. I My tried right. so hard, but and his book is called "The Sacred Marriage of David and Bathsheba." Oh, excuse me, "The Secret of the Marriage of David and Bathsheba." Okay. And uh oh, now I've yeah, got to find I know, somebody that speaks I know. French. We got to get. I know. This. I was trying, and he said he said something that's going to kind of add one more layer of aha to this. I think that's important. And this is what he said clear back in the 12th century. I know somebody that speaks French. Yes, good. good. I got this. Okay, yes. He said, and, and, and I'm quoting here, <clears throat> And know and believe that at the beginning of the creation of man from a drop of semen, the latter, man, comprises three aspects, his father, his mother, and the holy blessed be it, he calls it. His father and a mother shape the form of the body, and the holy blessed be it, shapes the form of the soul and here's the big one and when a male is created his feminine partner is necessarily also created at the same time because no half form only a whole form is ever created from above he talks about genesis and how we are created in their image and that god that heavenly father and heavenly mother form this exact dyad Yes. And that that's how we too are created in a dyadic form. Yes. And <clears throat> that David and Bathsheba would necessarily be a dyad to have the lineage and of course Christ come through them. And so 
in that if that being the case you feel a draw you feel a connection to a person even if you don't haven't spent years knowing them you you there's a draw and you're constantly looking for them because you're looking to become complete you feel half and you're looking for your diet and maybe that's part of what David was feeling that night or seeing or sensing because I feel like he might have known her from before by based on her reaction to him so if he's thinking that she's my dyad, this is who the Messiah is going to come through or something on those levels, there becomes this layer, these a few layers of, I don't want to say justification, but kind of like, how can you withhold my dyad from right. me? Right? right. And so, because this is the belief, I mean, it, Genesis. And, and you would think, you know, David had the kingship was given to him, but not tangibly for so many years mm -hmm, when mm -hmm. and, and he waited and he waited but maybe it's harder with your soulmate yes you know yes absolutely I, I absolutely believe that I, I think that dyadic relationship is found with with Jacob and Rachel I think it's with obviously with Isaac and Rebecca I think the, the you know the forefathers of, of, of where we come from those are dyadic strong relationships which is why jo uh, Jacob was willing to work another seven years and I, and I think there's also grounds if you look at Mikkel that the, that there was political ma manipulation 100%. with brides you know 100%. Saul's man and David so the the bride that was betrothed to him he takes and gives yep. to somebody else yep. you know yep. so there's there's even a stage set mm -hmm. for this kind of a situation yeah and so did David ha were they the love of his life these other wives I don't know I can't say but I can say that Bathsheba was right and that's history that's history yeah, yeah. So again, here we're dealing with the love of his life. We're dealing with lives are now on the line. Does he want his dyad to be stoned in the city square because he got ahead of the Lord? No, he doesn't. So now he takes all these measures and they don't turn out well. And, and then, you know, and I know you're going to this, so I'm glad. You know, people forget that he, not only did he lose the Lord's favor for a while, but he, he lost his kingdom. And he lost his son. He lost his he son. He lost the baby. He lost the baby, the baby died the anyway. The baby died. He lost Absalom. He lost his family. Everything. I mean, the and rape of Tamar was right after this. The the most horrific thing in my in my book that Nathan tells him is that the sword will never, never. depart yep. from your home. Yeah. Yep. And holy cow. Yep. What happens to his family? And David was a family man. Yeah. He loved his well, family. And he, he was he an adoring and dad. Even, even when the sons are turned against him, mm -hmm. he weeps mm -hmm. over them. And and this baby he wept for. Remember. He wept and he fasted and he prayed for seven days that that baby lay sick. The baby eventually died. But for that seven days, he pleaded with the Lord to please forgive him. Take this, you know, and he knew it was his fault. And so, you know, this isn't a hard man. He wasn't justifying anything. No. Made some bad decisions. Actually, was took put full in, responsibility he did, for it. He did. And, and when Nathan confronted him, to his credit, he immediately realized what had happened. Of course, it was in front of everybody. But he... And we've been contrasting this, so we, we just need to remember to contrast this with King Saul. When Samuel confronted him, mm -hmm. he made excuses and argued mm -hmm. with him. Mm -hmm. And David immediately saw he was indicted. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I, and so this idea too, and I, I think you'll talk about this with the, with the repentance, but just, you know, I think you're going to talk about what Joseph Smith had to say about it, which I'm real excited. I, I love that. But then also a, a more modern prophet, I want to say it's David O. McKay, maybe you have this in here. Did a question was put to him, I think, is is David still kind of struggling through the layers of, of hell or outer darkness or whatnot? And I and, love this quote. And yes. he, you know, you know, this yes, one, yeah, no. and he basically said, no, he's the Lord has forgiven him. And and, and he's preaching. He's yes. 
Yep, and I I think so. Yes, David is a gives us a wonderful cautionary tale, but but he also gives us the Psalms. He gives us repentance. He gives us what what heart, you know heart wrenching repentance looks like. He gives us he give us he gives us the definition of a broken heart. Yes, and a contrite spirit. And someone who was not crushed by the bitter cup, even though he's the one that made made it bitter. Yeah. And and that you know he took his bitter cup. So I, you know, I David's a hero a lot in my eyes. I, you know, like I said, he put himself in a hard spot. Well, and I, I said it before you came, but you know, we we always look at Solomon as you know, good wise King Solomon, and we look at David of, eh, you know, you really mess things up. But you know, scripturally, it's not that way. In the biblical scriptural narrative, David is mentioned as the one that God made promises to, mm-hmm. the one, uh, the sure mercies of David, okay? He's mentioned in a positive light, whereas often King Solomon is mentioned in a negative light. Mm-hmm. It's very kind humble. of a flip oh. of what? Uh, he was kind very of humble in, in his repentance. Right. Yeah. Once he got to that point, he was exactly. yeah. incredibly. Exactly. And, you know, it's, uh, it's mm-hmm. obvious mm-hmm. That there was more to that test mm-hmm, mm-hmm. than what meets the eye, having passed so many other tests. Well, I think she worded it very well when she says, "Most of us don't have the liberty to sin at that level." Exactly. <laughs> no. Exactly. Well, right? We don't have the power to. Yes, yes. we right. don't. You know. But you know, every true great story, every you can look back in history, and it always comes down to there's a love story involved. It really does come down to somewhere there was a love story. Even, even with you know our our pre mortality and all of those things, it comes down to the story of the heart. And I, this one's no different. I mean, he, because we're all driven to find that wholeness. That if in fact, and I believe as it did, that we're created. I'm, I'm just getting chills yeah. <laughs> from what you just said because we, mm-hmm. the greatest love story is Christ and His bride. 100%. And every great sacrifice, every great drama comes from love. Yep. Yep. Our, our very existence comes from two people becoming whole, right. even if for a time. So we're always searching for that wholeness. And when you find it in a dyadic companion, it can be overpowering. It can make you do crazy things. Right? And so... I don't blame David. I With consequences. Him. With consequences. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, you, like I said, you look at what, what uh, Jacob did for Rachel. You look at what Isaac did for Rebecca. You just, you look at what their stories were. You look at, you look at uh, Seneth and, and Joseph. I mean, that's a love story. Oh, I know. I mean, look what she did and overcame. And the, she saw him once as he walks through the, the courtyard. So in order to get that one, you're going to have to go online and look for the Apocrypha. Uh, the story of Asenath. Oh yeah, it's, it's there. It's beautiful. for anybody yes, that doesn't know. I love know, that right? one. Okay. But but like I said, because and why do why do all these love stories resonate with us? Why do they get us in our heart? Because we're born seeking that wholeness, right? And and we're driven. And so I think this is just a beautiful love story that had consequences. Thank you so much. <laughs> yes, for sharing yeah. with Thank us. You. Oh my goodness, I, I just You're a welcome. delight. And we're gonna we're gonna. Okay. That's kind of a flip side to the okay. David story. Um, we'll kind of finish up a, a few things about his repentance and nice. everything, okay. and then we're gonna do the the flip side of the Solomon story. Nice. Okay. <laughs> well, it was my pleasure to be here. I'm excited so to watch all this. I can't and you're wait. writing book. I am. I'm working on a book about uh, Book of Mormon 
intrigue and different things that I've been studying for a couple years wait. and so it's like it's my newest project in so two or three months yes that's the that's, that's the, the target that's the target <laughs> so stay tuned I'll be looking okay okay thanks Amberly. thank so you good to see you hey, I'm you so excited much. to watch how this all comes together yep. you guys yep. are great Take care. all right we'll see you bye-bye just wanted to share with you today kind of our theme song because we really believe that the scriptures are what counts, not us, not what we say, not what we believe. So thank you for sharing this with us. Finding myself at a loss for words And the funny thing is, it's okay The last thing I need is to be heard but to hear what you would say the word of God to me would you pour down my brain washing my eyes to see your majesty to be still and know that you're in this place please let me stay and rest in your holy Word of God speaks Finding myself In the midst of you Beyond the music Beyond the noise And all that I need Is to be with you And in the quiet Hear your voice, Word of God, speak. Would you pour down like rain, watching my eyes to see your majesty to be still and know that you're in this place. Please let me stay and rest in your holiness, Word of God, speak. Word of God speak, would you pour down like rain, washing my eyes to see your majesty, to be still and know that you're in this place. Please let me stay and rest in your holiness, word of God speak. Thank you, and till next time. See you next time.